Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from March 28th by Pastor Randy, titled, Who's Your One? Part 5. So a couple months ago, Lisa and I were visiting our kids and grandkids, and uh, me and my older son Jeremy were off somewhere, and Lisa had stayed at the house, and she'd made some chocolate chip cookies. And so I get back, and the grandkids are eating chocolate chip cookies, and, and Lisa said, they taste funny. They taste weird. And the kids are like, well, we're eating, and we're fine anyway. That they, they weren't a connoisseur of chocolate chip cookies like I am, apparently. But they, they said, oh, they taste funny. So I grabbed one, and I took a bite out of it. And knowing my wife's chocolate chip cookies and what they should taste like and, and watching her make these over the years, I knew the ingredients and everything. I said, did you remember to put in the brown sugar? And she goes, no, that's it. That's what I forgot to put in the brown sugar. How many of you have baked something and you forgot a main ingredient? That, what were you supposed to put it in? Yeah. All right. Are there any bread makers here? Do we have those? You know, back uh, when we were here in the early 80s, uh, the, the, old, the old timers that were around back then, they would say how during the winter they'd just sit around and they'd make bread and they'd all meet together and, and taste each other's bread and all that and just have some fellowship over the bread that they'd baked and, and get fat all winter. Uh, that's what they did. But have you ever had any bread without the salt in it? See, here's the thing. It only tastes like a teaspoon of salt to make a loaf of bread. But if it's not there, you won't eat it. It'll taste like paper. You'll throw it out. And in the Old Testament, there was a city that was like bread without any salt. It just had to be thrown out. That city was called Sodom. It was located on the south end of the Dead Sea along with about four other cities in that area. And it was a very wealthy city because of the salt and mineral trade. Salt was of high value back in that day. In fact, the Romans used to pay their soldiers in salt. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's not worth his salt? I don't, you don't hear that much anymore, but I heard that growing up. And that's where it comes from. So it was a very wealthy city, and it went the way of wealthy city without any boundaries. There were no moral boundaries, and we're all aware how in Sodom there wasn't any moral boundaries. But also, they didn't like poor people in the city. In fact, they had laws to keep poor people out of Sodom. If a poor person came into the city, it was open season on them. You could do anything you wanted to. You could enslave them. You could rape them. You could kill them. It didn't matter. It was just open season on poor people in Sodom. Here's a verse that read in, in Ezekiel concerning this. It says, now this was iniquity. The iniquity is sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and needy. They actually had laws in Sodom against charity. One law said that if you strengthen the hand of a poor person, you'll be burned with fire. There was one time that this uh, older, poor gentleman came into the city, and he was hanging out near the well there at the center of the city. The center of the city, people said, well, hey, he'll either die or move on because nobody's going to give anything. Nobody's going to help him. So he's either going to die or move on. But he kept surviving, and they couldn't figure out, how's this guy still surviving? Because nobody's helping him. So people started keeping an eye out. And what they found out, this woman had pity on him. And so what she would do under pretense of going to the well to get water, she'd take her bucket. And her bucket was a little bit of flour. And she'd dump that flour into his bucket and then dip her bucket in the water and go on. 
They attached her to the city wall, put honey on her, and let the bees come and kill her. That was the reputation of Sodom. So poor people stayed away. They didn't go near it. The reason Sodom shows up in the Bible is because Abraham's nephew Lot lived there. He had moved to Sodom and he was wealthy, so he was accepted in the city. And then one day these three guys come to Abraham and they tell him, look, you're going to be having a child a year from now. You're going to have a little baby boy, which that's what he'd been waiting on for 25 years. He was excited about that. But as they get up and leave, they have a conversation with Abraham. And in this conversation with Abraham, we discover something about the God we worship. But more important than that, we discover something about what the God we worship expects of us. And if we could just let this sink in, if we could let the truth of what he's going to have this conversation with, with Abraham about Sodom and the truth about what we see in the New Testament, if we could just let this truth sink in us, what a difference it would make if we understood it. So here's a conversation that he has. In Genesis 18, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious, which makes sense if you knew what was going on in this part of the world. And he said, I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now Abraham's concerned because Lot lives there. So he's concerned about what these guys are going to find because he knows how wicked Sodom is. So this is what Abraham says. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous and the wicked? God, you wouldn't do that, would you? Being a just God, you wouldn't take out the righteous along with the wicked, would you? So he keeps on. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? Now, to put this into context, to help you understand what's going on here, they have excavated the city of, of Sodom, and they discovered that somewhere between 800 and 1,200 people lived in it when it was destroyed. So if we go right down the middle, we'll say it's about 1,000 people. And if there's 50 righteous in a city of, of 1,000, that makes 5% of the people. So Abraham is saying to, to God, you wouldn't destroy it if there were 50 people, if 5% of the people were righteous. You wouldn't destroy it, would you? And he goes on, could you not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Then the Lord replied, if I find 50 righteous people in the city, if 5% of the people are, are righteous, if Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The neighbor Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even as though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So not only are we learning math, we're learning something about God here. Five people can make a difference. And let's keep on. Then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I'll speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not find, I will not do it if I find 30. Then he said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let, let my Lord be angry. I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. 
When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. So what do we learn here? We learn one thing, you can bargain with God and not get struck dead for it. But we also learn that there's just 10. That makes 1% of the people or righteous. From God's perspective, that makes a difference. From God's perspective, that, that goes a long way. It's, it's sort of like salt. It goes a long way. So what happens next is these two guys, two of the three guys, two of them head to Sodom. One goes to Gomorrah, and they wind up destroying both cities. In fact, all these four or five cities in that, four, five cities in that area just wound up getting destroyed. What archaeologists believe is that since these cities lay set right on a fault line, that there was an earthquake. And when an earthquake happened, it reduced pockets of natural gas. And as these natural gas shot up into the air, they were lit on fire by the fires in these cities. From their perspective, it would look like fire was raining down upon them. And what they found is all these cities are covered with a layer of sulfur. From God's perspective, he'd had enough. See, a lot of times we look at our culture today and we look at all the immorality going on and we look at all the violence and the injustice going on and, and all the stuff going on. We go, we go, God, why don't you do something? Well, you need to know God's standards have not changed and he is not unaware of what is happening in our culture. But from God's perspective, if there's just 1% of the people who are righteous, he'll take those odds. He'll go with that. As long as there are righteous people, there are hope. Because a little bit of righteousness, and here's what you need to grab up, a little bit of righteousness goes a long way. So 2,000 years later, Jesus is on a hillside, and there's hundreds of people out there who are just poor people. They're just trying to get it right. They're just trying to, to live like God wants to. They're just trying to, to be good people. And he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. And they're thinking, us? We're nothing. We don't have any political influence. We don't have any monetary influence. We don't have any influence, social influence. We're a bunch of nobodies. But Jesus says, no. Let me tell you how I see you, how the Heavenly Father sees you. You are the salt of the earth. Now, on that day, salt was not just a flavor enhancer. It was, it was a preservative. In a, in a time where there was no refrigeration going on, if you want to preserve your food, it would take salt to do it. And so what he's saying is that you keep the world from rotting. You remind the world that there's a right and there's a wrong. He would talk to our youth and say, you're the salt of your school. And our youth would go, what? I'm not the captain of anything. I'm not popular. Hardly anybody knows my name. But he said, no, no, no. You make a difference. In your class, you got these people that during test time, they text back and forth the answers to the test. And, and you say, no, that's wrong. Don't do that. But they just giggle and they do it anyway. But you're reminded of them that there's a right and there's a wrong. You may not see a difference, but you make a difference because salt makes a difference. You're the salt of J-Bear. You're the salt of, of ConocoPhillips. You're the, you're the salt of, of a construction company, of Home Depot. Because when you live by your convictions... You make a difference. You may not see a difference, but you make a difference because salt always makes a difference. Now, we know that part. We've been over that part of this before. That's something we all understand. But now what comes next is the part that we don't let sink in, that we don't get. Let's go back to Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but... 
Here's where we need to pay attention. If the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, in that day, they would get their salt, especially the poor people in that area because they couldn't afford to buy it. They would go to the marshes and they would find little reeds and sticks and pieces of bark on them. And they would either do one or two things. Either they would take that little white layer on there and they would rub it off and collect a bag full of that. Or they would just take those pieces of, of sticks and woods and reeds with them back to their home and they would rub it on their meat or their fish. And they would transfer the salt that was on that to their meat or fish. And when it was no more salt left to transfer out, they would just take that sticks and reeds, bark, whatever it was. They'd just throw it away, throw it on the path. Or if they, if they had scraped that off while they were there collecting, trying to collect a pouch full of this, they would take that to, with them. And in that day, salt wasn't pure salt. So it could actually, that, that minerals mixed with the salt, it could lose its saltiness. So after you rub that stuff all over your, your meat and your fish, what good is it? That, that handful of little pebbles that you have, it's no good anymore. You just throw it out. So what's he saying? He's saying that when we as God's people lose our value, lose our impact on the world, we have no value anymore. We're not worth anything. When we lose our impact, when we're not making a difference in the world that we live in, we've lost our value. Do you remember when the Israelites came to the promised land the first time? And because of their unbelief, because they're griping and complaining, God says, you can't have it. You're of no value. You're not going to make a difference at all in the promised land. All they were good for, those people for the next 40 years, was to walk around and die. They weren't good as far as God was concerned at all. And God still took care of them. They were still his people, but they were totally worthless to him. Look at again in Noah's day during the flood. The tragedy in Noah's day was not that a whole generation ceased to live. The tragedy in Noah's day was the whole generation ceased to be fit to live. So if the world around us is not fit to live, whose fault is that? That's not a rhetorical question. That's one you should be knowing the answer to by now. It's our fault, right? If we cease to, if, if we cease to be salty, it's our fault, not the world's. So, this begins to, to sink in. We tend to look at the decay, the immorality, the injustice, the stupidity that goes on around us. And what do we tend to do? We tend to want to shake our fists. Why won't the world come to its senses? But you know what? God looks at the immorality and decay and stupidity and the injustice around, and he shakes his fist and says, why won't the church come to its senses? Let's put it from a little different perspective. We've all known people, religious leaders, and just church people that have left the church because of a moral failure. But you don't know of church leaders and people that have left the church because of a lack of concern for the world, because of a lack of having an impact on the world. Because we don't consider that a moral failure. But you know who does? God does. He considers it a moral failure. 
What Jesus is saying when he says the salt is lost, is salt, if it's the sauce lost, is salt is what good is it? It's have to be thrown out. He is saying that there's an irreducible minimum as far as we're concerned. And that irreducible minimum is that we're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to have an impact in the world. The irreducible minimum for us as Christians here at GBC is that people need Jesus. That's the irreducible minimum. And when I say irreducible minimum, that's when life gets boiled down to its very basic of what it's supposed to be all about. That's what I mean by irreducible minimum. And when a person finds their irreducible minimum, that's a great thing. That'll make you a better parent, a, a better spouse, a better uh, businessman or businesswoman. You found a precious thing in life when you found your irreducible minimum. Think of it like this. It's fall time and you're going out hunting. And so you leave your, your campsite in your four-wheeler and you're going out to the backcountry. Now, some people think all of Alaska is backcountry. In one sense it is. But there's places you can go and you can go out and it's, it's, it, it's in the middle of nowhere already. But you decide you're going to go out in the backcountry. So you go on your four-wheeler. And you got a trailer full of a couple of cans of gas and camping gear and all that stuff. And you take it out and you head out. And you go 30, 40 miles back off of any road, near any road or even a beaten path. You're 30, 40 miles back. But then you decide, you know, I'm not going to stop here. There are other people that come this far back to hunt. And you can go back to some of those places and you'll see little tents set up about over every ridge. You'll see people out there to hunt. It says, I don't. I don't want just any normal moose or caribou. I want that 60-inch, 72-inch rack. Or I want that caribou with those nice, big, double shovels and, and everything, you know, just looking, just a huge rack on it. So you decide you're going to even get further back. So you wind up taking your four-wheeler over the next ridge and the next ridge, and you're getting ready to go up over the third ridge, and you're going out, you know, you're, you're kind of leaning Leaning this way while well, you got the forward over here to, to keep it balanced. And what you lose your balance a little bit and you flip it. Been there, done that. You flip it. And, and then after it flips over, you're laying there on the ground on the rocks. And I do speak from experience. You're just being real still. And you go, okay, fingers working? Yes. Toes working? Yes. You know, what about anything sticking out anywhere it shouldn't be? No, I, I think maybe I'm, maybe it's not. And you get up and you just have a few cuts and bruises on you. But your four-wheeler's toast. You broke the steering linkage and there's no way you can repair it. So now what's your irreducible minimum? Do you have to eat? Yeah, but not right away. You have to drink? Yeah, but not right away. Do you have to have toilet paper? Well, you can get by without that. What's the irreducible minimum? You're alive. You're just trying to stay alive. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter where you plan on going to dinner next week, to eat out. It, none of that matters. What matters is that you're alive. Life suddenly becomes reduced to an irreducible minimum. And that becomes all that matters. And what our irreducible minimum has to be as a people of God is that we got to have a one. We got to have somebody who we are praying for, who we're discipling to get them connected to God. If we don't have that, we're like salt that loses saltness. What good are we? That's how God views us. Here's what we read. 
the irreducible minimum. Colossians 1.16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything. He's talking about Jesus here. He's referring to Jesus when he's talking about the him. That's referring to Jesus. Everything has been created by Jesus and for Jesus. That's the irreducible minimum. Every person you lay eyes upon. Every part of creation you lay eyes upon. All been created for him, by him, and for him. Paul got this. He understood. So this is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because I'm compelled to preach. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You know what he's saying? He's saying if I don't have ones, I'm worthless. Woe is me. He says later on in just a few verses later, he says, I've got to do this because I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to be like salt that's lost saltness. I don't want to be just thrown out. I have to do this so I don't become worthless as far as God is concerned. That's the irreducible minimum. That's what we have to have. Paul got this. In fact, if you read the context of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about how he, he goes to, to Jews and he goes to barbarians. He goes to every people he can think of and, and, and he, he does all that he can do to try and get them connected to God. Anything. Not so he can become a chameleon. It's because he's got this burden that he has to do this. If he doesn't do this, he knows as far as God's concerned, what use are you? If you're not letting people know, if, if, you're, not, if you're not going in, in our terms today, if you're not discipling people to get them connected to God, what use are you? See, that's the part we don't like to talk about, isn't it? But here's what I thought. About. What's a good picture of that? What's a good picture of Paul willing to bear these burdens in order to get people to Christ? Because he's willing to do whatever it takes to do that. A good picture of that is in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus, where, not Jesus, but these four guys, and we're all familiar with the story, so we're not going to read it go over it, but when they get their paralyzed friend and they carry him on the mat to, to where Jesus is at in the house, but they can't get to him because so many crowds of people. So what do they do? They go up on the roof, cut a hold of the roof, and lower him down. That's what it's like to be compelled to preach. When Paul's talking about, I just got this within me, that I have to get people to God. I have to be sought. I have to, to make a difference. I have to have some value to God. When he's talking, what does that look like? Those, those four guys explain to us what it looks like. They're willing to bear some burdens to do what it takes to, to get their friend to Jesus. See, they didn't just sit back and go, you know, Let's call old Joe up. He's paralyzed. Let's let him know that Jesus is going to be there doing a concert tonight in town. Uh, call a cab, get tickets. Hope to see you there, Joe. We're going to be backstage. Hopefully, we're going to catch some little pics, a little selfies. You know, here we are just hanging with Jesus. Hope to see you there, Joe. No. They didn't say we want to get him to Jesus. They said we have to get him to Jesus. We'll carry that mat five miles if we have to. We all know what a 
drive-by shooting is, right? Sometimes we want to do just drive-by witnessing. Just drive-by people in their lives, roll our windows down and say, Jesus loves you, hope to see you at church Sunday. At least that's the nice ones. The mean ones are, you're going to hell where the worm dieth not, you wicked sinner. You know, get your life. Those are the mean ones. You see people who will hold up their sign, you know, John 3.16 at a ball game. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You don't see that much anymore. Hey, hey, to them that's witnessing. It's an A for effort, but it's a D for impact. Because if you want to have a value to the people around you, you have to bear some burdens. You have to get involved in their lives. You have to cry with them when they're crying. You have to, to, to be involved in their lives or it's just not going to happen. That's what it looks like. So Paul would say, Woe is me if I do not preach. Because I just put myself in a place where I become useless to God. So in our language, in our series that we've been going through for the past five weeks, Who's Your One? The idea, if you don't have somebody who you're praying for and who you're discipling to get them connected to God, you know, they may not be a Christian or they just may be a baby Christian, but you get to the point where they're connected to God. If you're not praying for them and discipling them, what value do you have? Here's what we go on when we read... uh, the next verse here, Matthew 5, after that verse 13. He says, you're the light of the world. doesn't say you have light. It says you are the light of the world. In other words, the only way the world's going to know who I am is through you. So what he's saying. Then he says this. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, it gives light for all who are in the house. So first of all, he's saying, you are the light of the world. If I were to come to you at your work tomorrow and whisper in your ear, you're the light of the world. You'd probably go, you're an idiot. I'm not the light of anything. I'm just here. But hear what else he's saying. He is saying that, that you take a light and you strategically place it for a purpose so that it lights everything up. What he is saying Not only is he telling these people, you're the light of the world. He's saying, you have been strategically placed for a purpose. You've been put to work where you work, to live where you live for a purpose. And I know what everybody's going to say and what they had to say back then. No, it's all random. My company moved me to Alaska. My parents moved me here. I don't even like Alaska. And you tell me I've been placed here for a purpose? Yes. Our sovereign God who created everything for him and by everything has been created for Jesus and by Jesus, he takes you, you are the salt, you are the light, not you have a light, you are the light, and he has strategically placed you for a purpose, where you're at for a purpose. What's that purpose? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Your purpose is not so people will go, oh, you're a nice guy. Oh, what a sweet person they are. No, your, your goal in life, your, your purpose is to live life in such a way that you point people to the Father. So they get a glimpse of who he is. That's your purpose. You are strategically placed for a purpose. And if you don't live out your purpose... You become sort of useless. 
So what God is saying is that I have strategically placed you for a purpose to have a one. Now, this begs us to ask the question, what can I do in my location to help point people to the Father? What can I do that goes beyond being a a nice person, that goes beyond being just a, a sweet guy, sweet girl that points people to who God is? It also invites us to look at something else differently. You want to see this world change? You want to see this world, in a sense, Go from darkness to light. You want to push back against the darkness? You want to push back against the rottenness and all the evil you see in the world? You have a choice. And this is what the choices that people are picking today. Either you can rant or you can protest. You can get online and and let people have it or you can choose a one. Which one are you going to do? When you choose to be a Christian in this world and to sit back and talk about how much you hate all the immorality, the evil, the injustice stuff that's going on around you, but you don't do anything about it, you don't do anything as far as getting involved in other people's lives and bearing their burdens, as far as God's concerned, you become worthless to him. You become useless. Listen, it's not like this has never happened before. It's happened all the time. We have those accounts I gave you through biblical accounts, and there's much more than that. The uh, book of Hebrews is pretty clear on this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We won't. There is no escape. It's a rhetorical question. We become worthless. We have to, he, he disciplines us, and he, he comes to our lives. He, he wants to bring us back to where we're useful to him. But if we just refuse, like Israel did, You just get put on a shelf for the rest of your life. And if you don't see that, if you don't see that going on in our culture, you're just not looking at things from God's perspective. You're not seeing it how he saw it in Abraham's day with Sodom, how Jesus saw it on that hillside 2,000 years ago as he looked over at these people and how he sees it today with us. So Jesus said this, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you get it, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have a one. A little bit of rough translation, but it's the main point. It gets it across. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have a one. Now, here's the thing. I hesitate to even talk about it from this point of view because I, I told you my, my hope is, is not to try and guilt you into having a one. I don't want that seem miserable missionaries, and they're no fun. You know, I don't want to do that. My whole point is that you will come to realize that when you start living out your purpose, that's when the joy comes. That's when the delight comes. It shouldn't be a burden to you. You want to carry people's burdens. So understand, I'm saying something different right here. Yeah, you want to carry people's burdens to get them to Christ, to connect them to Christ. But that should not be a burden to you to do that. That should be a joy. 
for you to, to be connected to people to Christ, for you to be living out your purpose. What becomes miserable is we decide we want to be Christians, but we don't want to have an impact on the world. That's miserable, being a Christian with that point of view. So please don't try and be burdened down with guilt. That's not my desire here. My desire is that you will discover or rediscover that you are salt, you are light. And you have been strategically placed for a purpose to have an impact in this world, to have ones that you go to and pray for and disciple to get them connected to God. So will you buy into that? Because here's the thing I know. You look around, you're going to see hurting people everywhere. Everywhere. That person you don't like at work, it's probably because their life is a hell. And if you go talk to them, you'll find out they're hurting. And you can go and you can bear some burdens. You can go get involved in their life. Paul said, I'll become all things to all men. He's not talking about I'll just be a pretend and be a chameleon. He's talking about I'm willing to bear anybody's burdens if it gets into Christ. You'll be like those four guys, the paralyzed guy. You're willing to carry him, do whatever it takes to get him to Christ. Cut a hole in the roof. You'll break some rules in a sense. You'll go out of the, the paint outside lines to get people to Christ. Because that's when you're fulfilling your purpose. Do y'all remember that movie Chariots of Fire? Maybe, maybe not. Anyway. Long time ago. So you got this guy in England. He runs. He loves to run. He's a, he's a devoted Christian, but he loves to run. But then when they want to have the race on, on, on uh, Sunday, he doesn't want to run on Sunday because that's Lord's Day. Anyway, it's, it's a whole thing. But the one line in that movie, he says, but when I run, I feel the, and I'll probably get this wrong, but it, you know, I, I should have showed the clip to you guys. But he says, when I run, I, I feel the delight of God on me. I feel his, his face smiling on me. And that's how it should be when we go out and we find a one that we feel like, oh, me and God, we are just, I'm just right where I should be. I'm doing what I know I should be doing. And that's what Eric Little was saying in that movie. That's what we should be saying as Christians. You're salt. You have a choice whether or not you want to be salty, whether or not you want to have an effect on the world. You're light. You have a choice on whether you want to remain covered or, or you want to let your light shine so that men will see our Father who is in heaven. You have that choice. And when you choose to go and get a one, to find, because they're out there, people around you are out there, and here's what, I'll tell you this, you begin becoming aware of this, God will put people in your path. He'll put ones in your path. They'll come up, and you go, oh. Maybe they can be my one. Or maybe you'll have one or two ones. You can have three ones, right? I know that math doesn't make sense. But anyway, to have more ones, God will put people in your path. And you will find your greatest joy, your greatest light, your greatest fulfillment when you embrace that and not push back against it. All right. So who's your one? Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.